a little preface to this week's worship service. Um, last week, by the way, our entire worship service was filmed on Monday. Normally we film on Thursday, and that's because some of you know that my dad has been in hospice uh, since my mom died two and a half years ago. And my sister was going off on a trip, and so I told her that I'd go to Denver and spend some time with my dad. So Tuesday morning, I was supposed to fly to the Big Island. We were supposed to have a meeting, and then that night, I was going to be taking a flight to Denver. Well, Tuesday morning, uh, literally one minute after my alarm went off at 4.15 a.m., my sister called to tell me that my dad had gone home to be with Jesus and my mom and his brothers and the rest of the family. And uh, so I went ahead and went to the meeting on the Big Island, flew out that night, and was able to take care of things in Denver until my sister could get there. All of this is simply saying that this week's service is just a little discombobulated. And by the way, combobulated is actually a word, and discombobulated means, well, if you notice that things are just off a little bit, we ask for your grace and mercy, and, and I know, because you're my family, that you will give it. But it's also a chance for me to say, for those of you who are missing, a mom, a dad, a husband, a wife, a child, a friend, a neighbor, your pain is real, but we have Jesus. And that is what makes all the difference. It's why we have worship both in person and online. It's not just about somebody yelling at you or telling you to do things. It's about this unspeakable joy. As St. Paul says, if the only hope that we have in Jesus is in this world. In other words, Jesus isn't God. He didn't die. He didn't rise again. And, and none of that's true. He says we're to be pitied more than everyone else. But he says because there is a Jesus and because there is an eternity and forgiveness and love, it doesn't get any better. Aloha and thank you. We all long for someone to tell us who we are. But more importantly, we need to know the person who tells us can be trusted, that, that they have the proper authority. We want them to confirm what we already believe or open up a new possibility of what we might become. Authority can be a terrible thing, though, unless it is coupled with humility and love. Authority can either quash us or deliver us. If an unholy authority, either of you know, religion or secularism, has fragmented us, faith can restore us. The Bible isn't just a storybook about other people that other things happen to. It's a narrative of wholeness and healing that transcends time and actually wraps itself around all of us. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's the Bible's way of encouraging us to take risks of boldly stepping out because faith is also the assurance of things not seen, at least not with our eyes, but we do see them with our heart and soul. I know we think... Love creates safe spaces and heals and makes us feel all warm and wiggly inside. But that's only so that we can crawl over or tunnel under or simply run through the walls that humanity has put up that hurt and destroy and ruin the beautiful things of God. You see, it's by God's authority that we live a life of grace. I watched a friend's Facebook highlight reel. It made his life look so amazing. The artificial intelligence that picked and chose from his photos was top-notch, even if it was lying. You see, he looked like a billionaire because he travels a lot. Someone that, by the way, if you watch this, everybody would be envious of. Everybody would say, I want to be that person. But those of us who know him see a different picture. He had to quit his job because the cancer is back. 
and the chemo knocks him on his okole for a week at a time. His wife is still dead. His only comfort is that she's with Jesus. His daughter almost died of an infection last year, and, and literally, it's only a miracle that saved her while they were on vacation. The AI missed those pictures for some reason, probably because they would scare people, and, and the advertisers don't want people who are scared. And yet, because I know him, it is those scary, terrible, painful pictures that actually inspire me. Because through it all, his faith never wavered. His love never surrendered. His heart only grew stronger. He had his moments, but grace won. It took me 15 years to understand today's Old Testament lesson. You see, I thought Ezekiel was actually talking about the grapes at Costco. You know, the ones when you take a bite of and it makes your face all crinkly and your teeth actually hurt. And I was wondering why any parent or grandparent would feed their children and grandchildren those grapes unless, of course, it was, you better clean your room or else I'm going to feed you those grapes again. See, once I learned Ezekiel wasn't talking about actual grapes, but rather the sour, hurtful, painful things that we do to ourselves and to others that affect and effect our children and our grandchildren. That's when the verse made a lot more sense. It, it also knocked the breath out of me. I was in an event somewhere and someone found out I was a pastor and the chase was on. They made it very clear that they were not going to indoctrinate their children into any specific religion. Ah, they were going to have to wait until they could make that decision for themselves. Yeah, yeah appropriate age would be reached, and then they would allow them to start maybe asking questions and studying it. I simply smiled because I knew what was going to happen next. Oh, they couldn't wait to show me pictures of their kids in their customized Green Bay Packers jerseys. Oh, and by the way, at only four and six years old, they are already encouraging them to head toward the medical profession. They've even picked out schools for them. They've got them enrolled in soccer, swimming, tennis, and gymnastic classes after school because it's never too early to get a head start on those things. It's evidently, some things can't wait, and, and the children don't need a voice in. That's the parents' job to decide, but evidently, when it comes to faith and God, well, that the kid will decide when and if they, well, they determine that it's necessary. 85% of those kids grow up as nuns. That's the box that they tick on the survey when it says, which religion are you? And they say, none of the above, and a nun is born. To be honest, that's exactly what the parents are doing. They try to make it sound like freedom and trust and openness, but what they really want is for their children to be free from the church and all the pain and the anxiety it caused them. The parents ate sour grapes, or in some cases were fed sour grapes, and they don't want their children's teeth set on edge, and so they say, you know what? We'll just try to wait forever until you might decide someday, maybe if you're interested in God. Think about the things your parents or grandparents decided for you. What were they? How did they push you in that direction? Or did they lead you? And by the way, if you didn't know it, but you know, sometimes leading is actually the best way to get someone to do what you want them to do because it looks like they're, they've got the power and yet you're simply sidestepping here and there until you lead them exactly where you want them. What about the media's influence on your life? Politicians, advertisers, news. Everyone has an agenda. Everyone has an agenda. 
The only question is, do you know what the agenda is and do you know where that agenda is taking you? And most importantly, is it where you want to go? It's all about authority. Lawrence Kohlberg came up with six stages humans are supposed to progress through as they figure out life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When you're a baby, you do what feels good or what you know, people tell you to do. When you're a teenager, there's this strong need to fit in, and so you tend to do what others are doing, not because it's right or good, but because you want to be accepted. The final stage happens when you're able to process emotions, needs, wants, desires, outside influences, and a thousand other things, and do the right thing for the right reason at the right time just because it's the right thing. It all sounds great in theory, but it turns out a lot of people never get past that first stage. The argument between Jesus and the church leadership in the gospel lesson is over the purpose and the task of the church. Now, from a biblical perspective, the church's purpose is to simply be the people of God. This is something that never changes, never ends. See, whether we are on earth or in heaven, we are the people of God. The task of the church ends when we die or Jesus returns because our task is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that Jesus set apart for us. The moment we die or Jesus returns, there's no more evangelism, no more teaching, no more baptizing. Turns out in heaven, pastors and DCEs are unemployed. See how this works? You are a child of God. You are a unique and unreproducible miracle. You were a miracle in the eyes of God before you were born. You will continue to be a miracle in the eyes of God through eternity. And yeah, eternity never ends, so just get that. This is your purpose. It is who you are. No one can ever separate you from who you are. St. Paul says that very clearly in Romans chapter 8. Now, the task of the church is to help you figure out what you are and help you be it. Some of you teach. Some of you are musical. Some of you heal. Some of you lead. Some of you love. Some of you listen. Some of you cook. This is what you are. It is what you do. Unlike who you are, what you are comes with a choice. You see, whereas no one can take away who you are, a child of God, there are lots of people and lots of things who can take away what you are. People and things who keep you from singing or healing or teaching or loving or listening or cooking. See, all of those what we are things enable the body of Christ on earth to take care of those inside the church and reach outside to the church to those who aren't in the church but we would like to be in the church. Our task as the church must be both inward and outward. And neither, by the way, is more important. It's, we can't say that the people in the church or the people outside the church are more important. They, they both are. If we don't take care of the people in the church, they're going to leave. Then they're going to be outside the church. But obviously those outside the church are outside the church, so we need them in the church. This is why both are important. For the people of God to accomplish the task of the church, we use our time, talent, passion, and ability to love and heal and forgive and encourage and care for one another. When that doesn't happen, the church is broken. People get hurt. Feels like they're eating sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And parents decide to steer their kids away from church and God. The church is rarely what people imagine it to be, and it is almost never what people want it to be. The church on earth is what the leadership of the church decides it is, and it is in that tension the church leaders ask, so Jesus, where are you getting your authority? Good question. Where do any of us get our authority? I mean, what's the purpose of our authority, and, and how do we wield our authority? 
In her epistle lesson, St. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, your Lord. I'll be honest, Paul's definition of authority doesn't match most churches' definition of authority. Far too many people think that authority is power over people. It's being the top dog. It's total control. Authority is people having to do what you say even if they don't like you. This takes us back to being accepted, that longing to belong. If people won't accept us, well, then the next best thing is having power over them. They may not like us, but they'll have to do what we tell them to do. Why that is an acceptable substitute for being loved and accepted, I don't know. But I see it happening all through history, especially in the church. So where did you get your authority, they asked Jesus. It's a game of one-upsmanship. The old public school or private school, Ivy League or community college, Gucci or Amazon Basics. The church leaders have been telling everyone their authority is from God. And by the way, they probably actually believe it themselves because they can trace their lineage all the way back to Aaron and Moses. And it, you don't get a better pedigree than that. Everything was working great for them. I mean, they wielded their authority naturally, condemning everyone who wasn't like them with surprising ease. And no one really dared challenge their authority. Life was good. And then Jesus showed up. A rabbi with no pedigree, born in a stable, rumors about his parents not being married. Uh, his dad was a carpenter, his disciples fishermen and tax collectors. But the people were flocking to him. And for the first time, these church leaders felt threatened. One of them actually noted, you know, if this doesn't stop, they're all going to be following him and not us. And another one said, this Jesus is turning the world upside down. You know, what we hunger for more than anything else is to be known. And yet, when someone knows us, warts and all, it can be the scariest thing in the world. Because once they actually get to know who we are, will they still love us? I mean, sometimes we even create a false us, something that we make up, but, but we think is far more acceptable or far more lovable. Can God love us? I mean, can God actually love us? Not... not not because we did a bunch of stuff or because we're beautiful or rich or talented. Because, you know, it, it's actually easy to at least fake love people like that. Can God love us even though we are us? What, whatever that means about us being us. Jesus said that God could. And that he did. And, and that made all the difference, which is why all those people were following him instead of the other church leaders. See, too often we have been told that questioning God is bad. But there is one thing I've discovered. I'm far more worried about the kinds of things that happen, not when you start questioning God, but when you stop questioning God. You see, when you stop questioning God out of either fear or self-righteousness, bad things are going to happen. There is a difference between questioning God and questioning what the church is doing. Because we actually need to know what God is doing and why. That's what theology is. It's a study of God. And the only way you can study God is by studying the relationship he has with his people. When you read the Gospels, you realize the church leadership often abused their authority. And it's nothing new. It's still happening today. They thought their authority was to condemn people by pointing out all their sins and iniquities, which, which those people had ever offended God. And truthfully, part of their authority was to do exactly that. 
but their authority doesn't and can't end there. There is another type of authority, another side to authority. See, Lutherans are not checklist people, at least when it comes to Jesus and heaven, you know, as in, okay, I did this and this and this and this, okay, only three more things and I've earned my heaven merit badge. You see, God is the starting point, not the ending point. And it's God who is the starting point, not us. Right before Jesus told us to go and make disciples and teach and baptize, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, he says, go. And do you remember what Jesus told his disciples to go and do? Uh, Heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, forgive sins, love your enemy. Speak the truth, but always in love. The church is not a bunch of people who are perfect or who believe all the same things. On the contrary, the church is a bunch of people who are caught up in the same story, playing all the different parts. But Jesus is the center of it. When someone asks us where we get our authority, we point to Jesus. You see, if you want to know why it's important where Jesus got his authority, it's because if we abuse our authority, or if we don't take it seriously enough, if we coveted it, got anxious, hurt ourselves, hurt others, and we most certainly have done all of those things and more, then it's not enough for us to sacrifice a dove or a bull, write all our sins on a goat and release it out into the wilderness, eat a thousand wafers and drink a hundred gallons of wine, wash ourselves over and over again in the water from the baptismal font. You see, those are just empty symbols without Jesus and his authority. This is why it's important we understand who Jesus is and who he says we are and where his authority comes from. We need to know when he says you're forgiven, you're loved, you are eternal, that it's true, that he has the ability to speak those things because he has the authority to speak them. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I I know my sheep and they know me and the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you think any of those church leaders would die for their people? Sometimes a bloody cross and a man nailed to it speak a lot louder and far more powerful than any words that might get spoken. See, lately I've been thinking a lot about the thief who was on the cross next to Jesus. Not the self-righteous, mean one, but the one who was willing to risk it all by saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He had nothing to offer Jesus, and and I mean absolutely nothing, naked, beaten, bloody, dying. And yet Jesus turned to him, and with an authority that comes from a loving and saving God said, today you will be with me in paradise. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A bunch of sinners and prodigals and lost sheep and dying thieves and people that no one else wanted, all gathered at a table not because they are rich or holy or deserving or worthy, but because they desired to be loved and accepted. And Jesus opened his hands with the nail holes from the cross still in him and said, welcome home. And by the way, at Jesus' table, there's not a sour grape to be found. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. 